Hi, I'm Poppin' Fresh, the Pillsbury Doughboy. They're great! We are all out of cornflakes, F.U. Took me three hours to figure out that F.U. was Felix Unger. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Today's episode is about, and I'm not sure how to characterize it, it's about food. It's about cooking. It's about feeding yourself. It's about baking. It's about... Uh, you know, all the good stuff we love to ingest in our bodies because, oh, it tastes so good. And uh, I wanted to talk about it today for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you've spent any time in my stream, you know that we always bring the conversation back around to food. Food is super important because it's so good. It's yummy. It's delicious. Oh, my God. Everybody loves food. Who doesn't love food? Seriously, there's something that you love, whether it's seafood or baked goods or candies you love something and when you can when you can binge on that oh there's nothing more glorious than binging on a bag of chips and salsa or a bag of m&ms or a sleeve of thin mints or you get a nice pasta going with a good hearty meat sauce oh that's so good how about a filet mignon i'm sure i've hit something that you love food is good They said greed is good in the 80s. No, 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 no. Food is good. (laughs) And that's what we're here to talk about today. Now, you're probably saying, how can you tell stories about food? Well, let me tell you. Food creates stories because of the circumstances where you eat it, the circumstances where you cook it, the person you cook it with, the person you cook it for. You can have stories that go with food, whether it's your grandma's recipe for pasta sauce, whether it's your grandpa's recipe for chocolate pudding, whatever it is, there's a story with food. Not all the time. I mean, you throw a couple of hot dogs in a pan, you're not going to have a story with that, but you could. I mean, here's your story for hot dogs. You and a girl you've just met are coming back from a first date at the movies, and it was the late show, so all of the restaurants are closed, and you don't want to go to McDonald's for takeout. So you say, why don't you come back to my place? We'll see if we can rustle up some grub. Okay, maybe you wouldn't say it that way. But you'd say, let's see what we have to eat. And what you find is a couple of hot dogs, a couple of rolls, a little bit of mustard in the bottom of the jar. And then together you make hot dogs. And it's a nice night. And the vibe is right. And you've got hot dogs boiling on the stove. And the moonlight hits her just right. And magic happens. And now you're going to have a story to go with hot dogs. That's how food has stories. Now, they're not all great romantic stories. (laughs) Of course not. But you can get stories with food. Now, my food stories go back to when I was a kid. Now, as you've heard from other podcast episodes, uh, my mom made dinner every night of the week. We had family dinner, and we all sat down. That's a rare thing these days, by the way. And a lot of the stories from my childhood came from the family dinner table. Now, what did we have for dinner? It was a variety of things. So I don't have anything particular associated with any kind of food, but I do have associations with the family dinner. But one of the things that I learned about preparing the family dinner is how to prepare food. And why is this important? Well, it's important because it helped me as an adult if I wanted to cook for someone I was dating, I knew how to do it. And I learned how to do it. And it's not hard. One of the things that I want you to take out of today's episode of Storytime is it's not hard to cook. It's not hard to bake. You just have to pick a couple of things that you really like 
and devote yourself to learning how to do them well. And I'm going to give you a recipe at the end. As long as you like pasta and meat sauce, this will be a go-to recipe for you. But we'll save that to the end. One of the first things that I learned about cooking and baking, I actually learned from my father. I always wanted to learn how to make the cakes that my grandmother made or that my mother made. My grandmother, my dad's mom, was a very good baker. And so he learned how to bake from her. Baking, and here's the tip that I'm going to give you for your use. Baking is very, very simple if you can follow directions. Find a recipe, look at the recipe, get all the ingredients together, and just follow it step by step. It's really, really easy. I didn't used to think so, but my dad taught me how easy it was. And actually, this is some of the bonding time that I had with my dad was in the kitchen. He taught me how to bake. Not my mom. My mom could bake too, but my dad is the one who taught me how to bake a cake. And I remember clearly standing in the kitchen with him, and he showed me from the beginning, when you see a recipe that calls for creaming the butter, I know where your mind is. Stop it. Creaming the butter is something entirely different than what you're thinking, you evil people. Creaming the butter has to do with taking softened butter in a mixing bowl and using a wooden or metal spoon, spreading it and working it and moving it around the bowl so that it's almost fluffy. I know you find that hard to believe, but if you do it correctly, you get nice, smooth, creamy butter, which is important for making cookies. I know you're going to say, Gamer Dude, is this whole episode about recipes? No, it's about the experience of cooking and the experience of baking. Because when I was standing there and my dad was showing me how to cream butter, it was it was important to learn, but it was also a bonding moment. I remember it to this day. I remember it like it was yesterday. And this was a lot of yesterdays ago. It was one of those moments, for whatever reason, that stuck with me. Because that whole recipe process, the creaming the butter, the adding the sugar to it, my dad took the time to show me how to measure butter. And he showed me how to measure butter if you didn't have a full stick of butter, but you had a lot of little pieces of butter. He showed me how to measure butter by putting it in a measuring cup and adding water because butter floats. It's a mathematical equation, but it was like a miraculous revelation to me. I said, oh, there is a way to do that. And my dad knew this stuff. And he took me step by step through the recipe from the creaming the butter, adding the sugar, mixing the dry ingredients. He told me the importance of keeping dry ingredients separate from the wet ingredients, which is the butter, the egg, and the sugar. And he told me why that was important. He explained to me that when you put baking soda or baking powder and flour and salt together, you're actually creating a chemical that will react with the wet ingredients. But the chemical reaction doesn't start until you mix them together, and that's why you keep them separate. Now, I remember this stuff. He took the time to explain it to me, and it made sense to me. Now, maybe you don't care that it's a chemical reaction, but trust me when I tell you, when you see a recipe that says keep the dry ingredients separate, keep the wet ingredients separate, there's a reason for that, so just do it. But my dad took the time to explain it to me, and I understood it. So after we got through the mixing the ingredients, he showed me how to grease and flour a pan. What does that mean? Well, when you're baking something, greasing and flouring a pan is important so the cake doesn't stick to it. And when I'm talking about a pan, I'm talking about an actual cake pan. There are actual cake pans. Not everybody knows this these days because not everybody bakes like they used to. But you can get two cake pans at your local dollar store for a buck a piece and you can go ahead and start making cakes in them. I still have the cake pans that my mother was using when I was a kid because they last for freaking ever. And they still work well, and all you have to do is grease them, flour them, put your batter in, and boom. 
But he showed me the process and why it's important. And so I learned how to do that. And I learned why I did that. And then he showed me how to measure the batter into each of the pans because you never fill a pan up because as you bake the batter, it rises. So if you fill a pan up, you'll have one very thick layer and one very thin layer because there's never enough cake batter to fill two pans. But there is enough cake batter to fill two pans two-thirds full. And that's how you get even layers. And this is the stuff that he took time to explain to me. So from there, he took me through um, how to tell when the cake is done. And yes, you can cook it for 25 to 27 minutes or whatever the recipe calls for. And that's certainly a good way to determine. You just check it on the clock. But he also explained not all ovens are the same temperature. And he showed me how to use a toothpick or a knife if you don't have a toothpick on how to determine whether a cake is done. And all you do is take the toothpick and push it into the center of the cake and pull it out. And if it comes out clean, the cake is done. And if there's stuff stuck to it, that means the cake's not done yet and you leave it cooked for a couple more minutes. Little things like that he walked me through. And that's why it stayed with me because not only was it me spending time with my dad, but it was me spending time with my dad doing something that was important to me, which was learning how to make a cake. The only thing more important than that was learning how to make chocolate chip cookie dough. That turned out to be the greatest thing that I ever learned how to make. And that's the first thing that I made on my own after my dad talked me through the process of making a cake. But we'll get to the cookie dough in a second, because that's not the end of baking a cake, of course. Once you're done baking a cake, once you determine that it's done, then you have to take it out of the pan. And he showed me how to take it out. And there's a method to it. You take your little spatula around the edge, even though you floured it, you loosen it up a little bit after you let it cool on racks for five minutes. I remember every timetable like it was yesterday. Let it cool for five minutes, and then you invert it on another rack so that it's cooling on a rack and the whole thing cools evenly. Then, when you get ready to frost the cake, you take the cake. Let's say you have two layers. Turn them both out onto racks, so now they're on their tops, and the flat bottom is up. What you do then is you take one of the layers and using your hand, you put the bottom and you're holding it in your hand and then you flip it onto a cake plate. Yes, there are actually special plates called cake plates. If you haven't seen one, they're actually pretty fancy. You can find them in stores. I find mine at yard sales and and auctions, but they're pretty cool because they're big enough for a cake and you can spin the cake around and have room to frost it without using a regular dinner plate, which is never the right shape or size to hold a cake. But a cake plate is perfectly flat. So the cake just lies perfectly flat. And that's why you use a cake plate. Thanks, Dad. So once you've inverted the layer of the cake so that the top of the layer is the bottom of the cake, you now have the flat part of the cake layer up. Then you take your frosting and you frost just the middle layer there, just that flat part. You frost it so that you have a base to put the other layer on so it doesn't slide off. You don't try to do the sides yet. You put the two bottoms of the layers together at that point. You have the one that's on the plate already. Then you take the other cake layer and flip it over so that the two bottoms of the layers are together separated by that layer of frosting you put in there. That's how you frost a cake, the traditional old-fashioned, I'm not in a bakery, I'm just a dude making a cake way. From there, you then frost the sides of the cake. And then you go up to the top and frost the top. And that's where you get to do the little swirlies if you're really creative, which I never was. I just said, is there enough frosting? Okay, boom, covered. Thank you. I'm done. But he walked me through the whole process because he enjoyed it. He knew I was enjoying it. And we got to spend time together. And that was the most important part about learning to bake a cake. 
Well, that and learning how to follow a recipe. So then I could learn to make chocolate chip cookie dough. Oh, chocolate chip cookie dough. My downfall as a kid. Nowadays, you can go to the store and you can go buy a tube of chocolate chip cookie dough. Or you can go buy the tub of chocolate chip cookie dough. It's not the same. It's so not the same. There is nothing like your own homemade chocolate chip cookie dough. And my mother would make it. And I would always want to lick the beaters, grab a spoon, sneak it out of the bowl before she ever cooked it. There's something about chocolate chip cookie dough that's in the mixing bowl before it gets to the oven that is just so good. Oh my God. I could eat an entire bowl of chocolate chip cookie dough. I almost did as a kid because I learned how to make it just so that I could eat it. Yes, I made the cookies. Don't get me wrong. I made the cookies. But boy, did I eat that chocolate chip cookie dough. Oh my God, it was so good. But I learned how to make chocolate chip cookie dough because I wanted, number one, to have the batter. Number two, learn how to make cookies. Because cookies are great. Cookies are awesome. Cake is good. Brownies are good. Cookies are awesome. Because you can have cookies anytime. Even with a brownie. And I love brownies. I actually like brownies more than cookies now. But when I was a kid... Oh, those homemade cookies out of the oven, whether it was chocolate chip cookies or oatmeal cookies or whatever cookies that we made, they were so good because there's nothing, nothing, nothing better than a cookie made from scratch. Fresh out of the oven? Oh, my goodness. And I've told you, my grandmother had a jar full of cookies whenever we went up to visit her. My mom's mom, this was, the one who put the bread on the cookie jar. I've told you that story. Yeah, for those who may have missed that episode of the podcast, if you make a batch of cookies and put a slice of white bread either in the cookie jar or in the container with the cookies, it keeps the cookies soft and fresh. Don't ask me why. It's science, and that's beyond my ability to comprehend. It just works. My grandma told me so and proved it to me every time we visited. So she always had cookies, fresh homemade cookies in the cookie jar. And they're so good. So good. Now, I was limited in the cookies that I could bake because the family liked chocolate chip cookies. That's what they liked. They also liked, occasionally, oatmeal cookies. Occasionally. Sometimes we'd get butterscotch chip cookies. Sometimes. Butterscotch chips were not as prevalent then as they are now. You can go into the store and find them anytime. They were a much more seasonal item when I was a kid. So it was rare that you'd get butterscotch chips. But once you got them, oh, a butterscotch chip cookie? Oh, butterscotch and oatmeal. That was a cookie we did. Oh, that was good. Oh, good eating. Good eating. The other cookie that my mom made around the holidays, Russian tea cakes. It's kind of a shortbread, but it's a little ball of dough, sweetened dough. You bake it after you refrigerate it, and then you roll it in confectioner sugar. You let it cool, and then you roll it again. So you've got like double layers of sugar on it and little tasty buttery sweetbread. Oh my goodness. That's a good cookie. So we had lots and lots of cookies because I loved baking the cookies and I loved eating the dough too. That was the best part. But there's more to feeding yourself and more to cooking than just baking. (laughs) I know it doesn't sound like much fun, but you actually have to eat the real stuff too. So I also learned how to make regular food. (laughs) I I don't know why I call it regular food. It's food. It's all food. I mean, cookies are regular food too. But, you know, there's the difference between the dessert and the meal. And I always liked to start with dessert first, but we always had to eat the meal. So you had to learn how to make good meals that you could eat. 
because of my dad, my dad did not like seasoning. My dad was, uh, you know, a, a typical old school guy. Give me my meat and potatoes, some salt. That's it. That was my dad. You couldn't season things. We didn't, I didn't even know pepper was a thing until I got into high school because we didn't have it in the house except to occasionally season a soup or a stew. And maybe at that point you could wave the pepper can over the stew. That's about as close as you could come to seasoning. When I got old enough, I learned to make chili on my own. I'll get to that at another point. But my dad would never eat the chili because, you know, chili has seasoning. (laughs) You know, things like chili powder and garlic, (laughs) all the good stuff. No, that was that was not something that I grew up on. I grew up on meat, potatoes, butter, salt. Those are the seasonings and the condiments, really. Ketchup, always good. Mustard, okay if you're having hot dogs. Nothing more than that. And God forbid you should bring spicy mustard into the house. Gouldens was a foreign word in our house. It was French's or nothing. There is no brown mustard. What is this brown stuff? That's not mustard. Mustard is yellow. Okay, Dad. The stuff I learned when I got out of that house. Oh, my goodness. The joy of discovering mayonnaise. We grew up on Miracle Whip. Why did we grow up on Miracle Whip? Because Miracle Whip has virtually no seasoning in it. Mayonnaise has things like, you know, herbs and spices in them. And that was something my dad did not want to have a part of. Miracle Whip. That's it. When I discovered how good mayonnaise was, oh my goodness, it was like a whole new world was open to me. But I digress. We could go on to condiments for a long time. But what I wanted to get to was the actual meals that I learned to cook. Now, a hamburger is basic. You can, and and I learned too, stretch hamburger by using things like an egg and some breadcrumbs. And when you're raising a family of five on a nickel and dime budget, you learn to stretch your hamburger a long way. And my mom did. We used a lot of breadcrumbs. We used a lot of additives to our meat to make it stretch a little further because when you have you know, five people to feed, you need a lot of food. So I learned how to stretch hamburger. I don't do that anymore. I add an egg to hamburger now when I'm making hamburgers, but I rarely add filler. I'll add seasoning and flavoring, but I don't add filler because if you're having a hamburger, you kind of want the burger part to be meat. So that's what I try to make them. But hamburgers were always a staple. Meatloaf was always a staple. And again, meatloaf with, you know, salt and... Yeah, that was it. Salt. That's what we had. We would have meatloaf. We would have potatoes, baked, not mashed, not fried, baked potatoes. We would have a vegetable. So I learned how to make salad because salad counted as a vegetable. Uh, Oh, and the thing that I learned about salad, don't cut the leaves, tear the leaves. I'm not sure to this day why that is. I've looked it up. You know, there's theories But I mean, one of the best salads that I've had recently is chopped salad, and you chop salad with a knife. But my mom's rule, tear the lettuce, don't cut the lettuce. So I learned how to tear lettuce into small bite-sized pieces for the salads that we would have. And this is back in the day when the only lettuce was iceberg. Romaine? What was that? I didn't discover romaine lettuce until I was long out of college. We never had romaine lettuce in my house. We had a head of iceberg, some big beefsteak tomatoes, And that was salad. That was it. That was it. You don't put carrots in salad. You didn't put broccoli. You didn't put any other things. A salad was lettuce and tomatoes, period. End of story. Thank you. That's what I grew up with. So I learned how to make a really good lettuce and tomato salad. I learned how to make hamburgers. 
I learned how to make breaded chicken breast, and that's a very easy thing to do. You take either some breadcrumbs, or if you really wanted to get creative, you could take either saltine crackers or cornflakes, and you could grind them up or mash them up and use those as breading. And then you would take the breaded chicken breast and fry it in oil on the stove. And that's how we made breaded chicken breast. Very tasty, very easy to do. Nowadays, if I bread a chicken breast, I'll use a flavored breadcrumb or I'll combine the flavored breadcrumb with some fresh seasoning and some fresh uh, herbs so that there's a little more flavor to it and you have a little more pop to the chicken. A little seasoning goes a long way when you're cooking. Now, I promised you a recipe. I don't want to go on too, too long because I could go on too, too long. And maybe I will do a recipe story time to give you some more of the recipes. But I wanted to give you the most basic recipe that I learned early on. And this is easy. This is a piece of cake for anybody. If you like pasta and you like sauce and you like a meat sauce, this is for you. And now when I say meat sauce, I'm talking a real meat sauce. It's chunks of meat in there. This is the, the spaghetti sauce that I grew up on. My mother made meat sauce all the time because, again, it stretched the hamburger for a couple of meals because our meat sauce was based on ground beef, browned, and put in sauce. Now, you can get a sauce in a jar these days, and it'll say marinara. It'll say meat sauce. It'll say anything that suggests there was meat near it one time. But a true meat sauce has big chunks of meat in it, and you're never going to get that in a jar. And there's nothing wrong with a jarred sauce. I use jarred sauce all the time. It's quick. It's easy. There's some good flavors out there. There's some things that you don't usually do yourself. But if you want to do a good homemade sauce, this is the quickest, easiest recipe I can give you. The first thing you're going to do, and I learned this by watching my mom. I took notes. I saw this done many, many, many times, and I've done it countless times since then. It's a tried and true recipe. It will work for you. It will impress anybody that you can make a homemade meat sauce. This is a quick one. There are ways to do it, and I do longer versions of this because the longer you let a sauce cook, the better it tastes because it gets all the seasoning a chance to work together and fill the meat with good flavor. And there's something about letting it set all day, simmering at a low temperature that really makes it taste good. But if you're in a hurry, you need a sauce in an hour. This is how you do it. Take a pound of ground meat. Put it in a frying pan. You want a frying pan that's probably about two quarts. And... I'm going to use two quarts as a measurement, but the easiest way to tell, is it about 10 inches to 12 inches wide and about two inches deep? If so, that's plenty of room. Take your pound of ground meat, throw it in there with a half of an onion all chopped up. You can chop it in big pieces or small pieces, but go get an onion, cut it in half, peel it first, and then chop it up. Put that in the pan with the ground beef. Brown it at a medium temperature with a little oil, olive oil, if you like a little flavor from the olive oil. You could use butter. You could use anything if you want a little more flavor than just the meat. That's totally up to you. It'll take you about 10 minutes to brown it. Don't walk away from it. When you brown it, you're going to flip it over a couple times as it browns. Break it apart. It's not hard. Just keep an eye on it. Medium heat or less, you don't walk away from anything you have on the stove. Don't ever do that. Keep an eye on it. So you're browning it, you're breaking it up until all of the meat is broken up, all of the onion is translucent, that means you can see through it, and then it's all a nice even brown color. That'll take you 15 minutes tops. Once it's all brown, here's what else you need. You need two cans of tomato sauce, 15 ounces each. You need two small cans of tomato paste. They're six ounces each. It doesn't matter what brand, you can use Hunt's. 
You can use Contadina. You can use whatever your local brand is. But you're going to have two 15-ounce cans of tomato sauce, two 6-ounce cans of tomato paste. Open them up, pour them in. Now you're going to need seasoning. I hope you have seasoning in your house. If you don't, you're going to have to invest a couple of bucks on two seasonings. You've probably heard of this. It's called oregano. You've probably heard of this. It's called Italian seasoning. If they don't have one or the other, you can get basil instead. These are the dried ones. Obviously, fresh is better, but let's say you don't have fresh. Get two jars, one of either oregano and basil, or oregano and Italian seasoning, or basil and Italian seasoning. Whatever combination you want. You can use all three if you're really adventurous. Then you're going to take a tablespoon. And when I say a tablespoon... Get an actual set of measuring spoons. It's not hard. They're not expensive. Dollar store, you can get them for a buck. Take a tablespoon of each. Pour it in there. Mix it all up. You're still on a low heat between low and medium, somewhere in that range. Mix it all up. Let it simmer. Here's the other thing you want to do. Get the sugar out. Not a lot. We're not making a sweet sauce. We're just adding a little bit of sweetness to take a little of the tartness out of the tomatoes. Why? Because it works. That's why. Trust me. If you like really sharp tomatoes, it's really good without the sugar. But if you want to take a little of the edge off, take that tablespoon, put a tablespoon of sugar in there too. Now, what you want to do is give it a little taste. After you've mixed everything up, let it set for about five minutes tops. Let the juices flow. Let the sauce start to bubble a little bit. Give it a little taste. Blow on it first because you'll burn yourself. Give it a little taste. See how you like that. If you think you need a little more seasoning, here's the dirty little secret about cooking that nobody tells you. When you're making something like this, you can add stuff that you think is really good. You want a little more oregano? Go ahead. Go ahead. Put another tablespoon in. Go ahead. Put an extra spoonful of sugar in there. You're allowed to do that. When you're making your own stuff, you can ad lib. It's kind of like jazz. You can make it up as you go along. If it sounds good, do it. If it tastes good, do it. Don't do too much, because once you put that sugar or oregano in, you can't pull it out. But if you do a little bit, it really tastes good. That's the beauty of cooking. You can make it up as you go along. So you've had your little taste. You like it? You're done. That's it. You don't have to do anything more. Let it sit there on the stove. Put it on the back burner, low heat. Let it simmer for 10 minutes. And you're done. Now all you have to do is pick your pasta. You can use spaghetti if you'd like. Sure, go with that. Or... Try something different. How about a little penne? Have you done that? Rigatoni? Pretty good. You could even just use some elbows if you want those. Throw whatever box you pick, throw the whole box in. That amount of sauce I gave you will match a box of pasta. Whether it's a box of spaghetti, a box of cavatepi, a box of of penne, whatever you pick, that amount of sauce will spread over that amount of pasta. Cook it the way it says on the box. If it says do 10 minutes for al dente, do 10 minutes. As much as cooking the sauce is kind of jazz, when you're cooking your pasta, follow the directions. You really don't want to overcook pasta because there's nothing worse than a mushy pasta. If you have the boiling water going and it says 10 minutes, throw it in, set a timer 10 minutes. When it's done, drain it into the sink. Now, when I say drain it into the sink, that doesn't mean pour it into the sink. Surely you have a colander, right? You know what a colander is? If you don't, please Google it. If you don't have a colander, take the lid of the pot that you boiled the pasta in, hold it in place, obviously using a hot mitt or an oven mitt, and drain it that way. But you obviously want to drain the pasta. But once the pasta is drained, scoop out some pasta, throw it on your plate, scoop out that amazing sauce you've just made from Gamer Dude's recipe book. Boom! Home run territory. Home cooked meal. It takes you less than an hour. And as long as you're not dating a vegan or someone with a gluten allergy, 
You're golden. Trust me on this. It's a great recipe. You will thank me for it. Oh, I've got a whole recipe book full of stuff, but that's all we're going to cover today. Thank you very much for listening. Are you hungry now? I think I need to go make some sauce, as a matter of fact. Give that a try. I'm thinking you'll like it. If you like pasta and sauce, in less than an hour, you can have homemade pasta and sauce. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you again for listening and for being here and for all the support you give me. I really do appreciate it. Until next time, you take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.